we at Research Recasted record here on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. We acknowledge all the many First Nations whose footsteps have marked these lands and whose culture continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast at McCune University. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host Brittany Eklund. Joining us in the studio is Dr. Josh Toth, an associate professor of English at McCune University, whose work focuses on literary theory, film studies, and contemporary American literature. Dr. Toth is particularly interested in books and movies that play with our expectations and force us to reconsider how we see the world and ourselves. A lover of books, he's also an author of books, including his two most recent, Truth and Metafiction, Plasticity and a Renewal in American Narrative, and Stranger America, a Narrative Ethics of Exclusion, both of which we'll talk about today. Hi, Josh. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I guess the first things first, um, where did your love of books and film begin? I don't. I, I don't know. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Really, um, I, I think I always read. Uh, if I was going to pin it down, uh, was a long car ride where um, my mum read me an illustrated version of The Hobbit, um, and and then I was obsessed with it and and found out there was a sequel, um, but I was only about six i think at the time so uh my parents bought it for me thinking it was a kid's book too <laughs> that's some heavy i was gonna say that's some heavy reading for a six-year-old and i i i didn't uh convince my mom I, I tried on several occasions to get her to read it to me um and and she would always fall asleep if, if you've ever read the lord of the rings i mean the first like 200 pages is, is just frodo reading you know and um uh, eventually, uh, I, I ended up actually for for a while, for several years as a kid, uh, on chemotherapy, and I had really nothing to do, and and was was sort of locked up in the house. Uh, so at about eight, I just pulled them off the bookshelf and and read them, and and that really sort of fixed me or or sort of entranced me. I mean, it was the first time I'd read anything where I was rationing the pages, you know, like like towards the end, and 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 just I'd only read like two pages a night just to make it last. So. Probably there. And then, I mean, from that point on, I think, you know, to, to quote sort of or to paraphrase Goodfellas, you know, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be an English professor. So um, it, it just sort of grew from there. And then movies, you know, all this fantasy, fantasy stuff really um, uh, sort of fostered my love of, of just narrative arts. And then I moved on from there, you know, I discovered Quentin Tarantino and everything changed. Yeah, I think that like movies are such a huge part of our childhood. And I think everyone has those movies that like shaped them. Like mine was like The Labyrinth was such a crazy, huge movie. And The Last Unicorn that we watched as kids. And like as an adult, I'm like, oh my, like <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Dark Crystal and like, like mm-hmm. some of that stuff. Just like some weird movies that I watched as a kid that. I look back now, I was like, that's something that I, wow. I was just thinking of Bowie, you know, yeah. in, in Labyrinth and in that, that onesie the whole time, you know, it's just, it's yeah, incredible. Well, like yeah. I said, lots to unpack. Um, 
So can you tell us a little bit about um, yourself, like as a researcher, like what things you're drawn to as a researcher and, you know, how your experience as a researcher interacts with, I mean, you're also a professor, right? So I was, I was always really interested in contemporary postmodern literature, a really experimental literature, literature that was often quite funny and, and self-reflexive and, and, um, you know, a lot of self-mockery and parody and these sorts of things. So I, I was interested in postmodernism, but I, I realized that postmodernism was kind of old um, and, and, you know, there's tons of books about it. And, and so who, you don't want to just do the same thing. So uh, it was actually, I think I was at the, the matrix watching the first matrix movie nice. in like 99. <laughs> and, and um, there's that scene where, where Morpheus, you know, sort of intones, really sort of, you know, in, in this, this really epic way. And he says to Neo, welcome to the real world. And I was thinking like, this movie is postmodern, I guess, but that, that seems wrong. Like that, that, that seems off. Like what, what do you mean? Welcome to the real world. And, and I mean, if you're, if you're Neo, you should just really wake up and go like, what do you mean? Like, I couldn't tell the other one wasn't real. Why is this one any more real? Yeah. Like what makes it more real? And, and I, 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 that got me thinking to like that, that really seemed to me to be a, a turning point in some sort of cultural way. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about how there's a sort of backlash to postmodernism and that's going to be my thing. And, and my, my thing will be the end of postmodernism and, and how it sort of exhausted itself and we need something else. And, and that's, that's what I did. And, and that's, I got into a PhD program sort of on the merits of that kind of proposal. And I just, uh, I, I think I'm very one track minded because I, I never left it. I just, just, I had it, I kept going with it. Um, and, and that's what I did my thesis on. And, and then I, my first book I published was based on the thesis. So, um, and, and I don't, I, I wouldn't say I initiated, <laughs> um, this idea that postmodernism is over, but, um, I, um, I helped perpetuate it, I think. Um, so I, I feel somewhat responsible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I find it so interesting um, that you were so focused on what you wanted and, and you're kind of where you thought you were going to end up. That's, I think, a very unique um, thing. So I think... Um, like I have no idea where I'm going to end up. <laughs> I, I'm not on a very, very focused path. I'm kind of like everywhere. It's, I think almost unbelievable. Like even for me, I, I don't, it's, it's very lucky, I think in, in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I was interviewed I, as an undergrad and, and the interview was just like, where do you see yourself? And I, I said in 10 years teaching at a Canadian institution, an English department and well, nailed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nailed it. So, um, so chance, hundred percent. So, um, I just want to know, like, how how is the sense of the the world and each other tied to this these stories? Kind of going back to what we were talking about before, tied to the stories we tell, and like, what's an example of how studying film and literature can help us understand human behavior? <laughs> I, it's it's almost like the the. The question is, is the inverse of that, you know, how, how, how at any moment is literature and film or anything narrative not sort of impacting the way we, we view the world or, or engage with it. So I, I think, and I mean, obviously as, as a, as a, you know, faculty member in the department of English, I, I'm biased, but I, I think 
I think we're always in a feedback loop between these these representations of ourselves and ourselves in the world. Um, and then those representations feed back into ourselves and, and into our relationship with the world. So, whoa, <laughs> it, that's, that's really meta for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, I, and so I think we always have to be hypercritical um, and wary of, of the way in which um, our, our sort of narratives um, justify certain behaviors or encourage certain identities or um, you know, exclude certain, you know, options or possibilities for people. And, and I think, um, if we're not, um, and if we're sort of just sort of consuming in this sort of passive way, we really run the risk of, of, of having even less control than we, we might actually have in, in, in our day-to-day living. So, um, I, I can't expect everyone to constantly be sort of analyzing things the way we do in an English department, but Mm -hmm. I think, uh, one of the things we do um, as as professors and instructors in an English department is um, really sort of help people to do it when they do and to do it well um, and and to understand how to how to read the world. I mean, when, when you think about it, the world is just a, a, a sort of construct of of different narrative tropes and and genres and and things and so the more we can understand these things on paper and there's something safe about that too i mean we can talk about racism and sexism and uh, homophobia and all kinds of things as they occur on the page and that allows us to see things in 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 our day-to-day living that that might not otherwise be apparent that's really interesting um so as as we see narratives changing like those around um those things you mentioned about around racism, sexism, how has the study of literature changed or has it? Yeah. So, so one of the big questions, one of the big changes, I I think revolves around two things. One is, is the type of media that counts as literature. Um, and, and we still have debates about this. I mean, lots of English departments still have debates about this. I mean, um, are we teaching graphic novels? Are we teaching film? Is film a, a work of literature, right? Um, is, uh, we've always taught drama, but but we teach it in the book, you know, like as opposed to the performance. Although not everyone, uh, different people do different things. Um, and then, of course, representation. I mean, that that really has become a big thing. I think maybe more in the last ten years than ever before. Not that it wasn't. I mean, it's it's been an issue since the seventies, probably. But um, you know, how many how many uh, women are on your syllabus? Um, how many uh, authors of color are on your syllabus. Um, and, 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 and it becomes a, a, a real sort of tense sort of, uh, you only have so much time to teach. And then there's this problem of canon where you have someone say like Toni Morrison, who's responding often to someone like William Faulkner. So can you teach Toni Morrison without teaching William Faulkner and, and, and things like that. So um, you want to set up this foundation that gets sort of shattered uh, by these these other people, these these other writers, uh, this more diverse field of writers. But um, how do you do both and and have time for it all? And and how do you focus on on what? And but I I think we've come a long way. I think our our if you look at syllabus or outlines for for English courses now as opposed to twenty years ago, I mean the the representation is just phenomenally better in most cases. I think I, yeah. I would like to think anyways. It's really like interesting too that you mentioned like what do we count as literature? Um, because one of the projects we're going to talk about today is 
um, polyvocal Bob Dylan. <laughs> so actually looking at like the music and lyrics and, and kind of, what would you say, written body of work by I, Dylan as literature? Um, I mean, he won a Nobel Peace Prize, no? He did. Yeah, yeah, for literature. So it's really interesting, this idea of what, and now like with social media, TikTok, Instagram, like, you know, are, is a spoken word on Instagram literature. Well, it's an interesting claim. I mean, I, I, I'm teaching, uh, this is a second year. I, I'm teaching, of course, we just took a long time to get actually on the books. Uh, it's a first year English course, but we, we've split up our English courses and uh, it's called uh, Narrative Across Media. And so I, I, I spend the whole first section of the, of the course on, on the relationship between music and, and lyrics and, and, you know, traditional print poetry and, and the relationship between an oral culture and a print culture, which is um, also, you know, connected to that same question. And I mean, it, it's funny because, I, I mean, a lot of the earliest poems uh, are, are coming out of a ballad tradition, a, a singing oral tradition. And, you know, someone like Leonard Cohen, for instance, you know, does, uh, has, has a song version of a Lord Byron poem. Uh, which is structured like if you look at um, Ghost Riders in the Sky, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a perfect ballad uh, on paper. Like if you write it, it's, you can you can scan it. All the meter is it's, it's it would it would appear on on paper if no one knew it was a song as a as a ballad written by you know Wordsworth. Although Wordsworth probably wouldn't write about Ghost Riders. Well, maybe uh, Coolidge would. <laughs> um, and and so. Yeah, I mean, that relationship has often been imposed, uh, or that, I mean, that distinction has been imposed between this form of, of uh, poetics, I guess, um, and, and this more proper traditional. And coming back to Dylan, I mean, when Dylan won the Academy Award, I mean, I don't have Twitter, but I, I, I can see it. Um, <laughs> As we all can. Um, it it just exploded, right? And and um, uh, you you had these, you know, sort of semi. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to be too mean. Um, sort of authors who who aren't you know the the, the great writers of the of our day, um, but popular, you know, like the Danielle Steeles of the world. Oh, or, or yes, whatever. Yeah. Danielle Steele. Uh, um, and, and, and writing, you know, these, putting out these tweets that, that, oh, well, I get it, Nobel, you know, reading books is hard, or, or um, if, if Bob Dylan won the uh, uh, Nobel Prize, does that mean I can win a Grammy? Um, and, and things like that, right? And, and there was, a, and the, the you, you mentioned, you know, is this print lyrics on the page? And, and when the Nobel Prize offered him the award, they, they immediately had to defend it. And um, and the, the way they defended it was that Dylan is a is a poet who should, who can and should be read, I think is the exact quote, who mm -hmm. can and should be read um, in the same way we, we read Yeats or Eliot. And I mean, that that book we did, I mean, that's, that's sort of how we open is with that... Um, that sort of tension in those first few weeks following Dylan's win. And, and Dylan, of course, ignored the win oh my for, gosh. for like two weeks, right? I and, do. And then when he goes yeah. to pick it up, he's like in yeah. like the yeah. hoodie. Just, and I'm like, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. He didn't even, he, he sent um, um, Patty Smith to to do his his lecture. and Or not his lecture, his, his, 
his sort of performance or whatever I it was mean, supposed Patty to be. I mean, but Patti Smith yeah. is also like legendary. So. It, awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and and then of course he plagiarized from Spark Notes his his Nobel uh, acceptance speech, which I mean he just <laughs> Spark Notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. I, I mean, I, I think he was having a good time with it, and I think he knew exactly what it meant, and 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 the sort of, and it's exactly what Dylan loves to do is is disrupt sort of cultural expectations, and everyone was having a frenzy about it, and he was just you know in his glory, like I think he oh uh, his glory is as as Dylan ever gets, and but but we we really started with that that idea that that sort of tension, the sort of gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair around this idea, and. Uh, we immediately took it back when we were introducing that book and and said, you know, we we pulled out a quote from uh, the 18th century when the novel was starting to show up and and everyone was just like, oh, these novels are going to wreck everyone's brain and how dare we call them literature and, and everything like that. But the interesting thing, I think, with Dylan is that we really feel that to justify him, he has to be a poet in the print sense of the word or not. And I mean, when you... And a lot, like any, any sort of scholar of poetry will, will probably tell you, you know, if you just, well, that's not true. I mean, there's a great Oxford professor, um, I forget his name right now, wrote a whole book on, on Dylan, but, um, he was an Oxford professor of poetry. And, um, but when you, when you write out Dylan's lyrics, I mean, some of the, he, he is quite impressive, but, um, they're, they're not as great as, as maybe a Yeats or, or Elliot or something like that. And, and if you just listen to his music, it's not Bach, you know, but there's a space in the middle where he's doing all of these things at once when he's, when he's a performer that he's doing something that is, you know, in the level of genius. And, and I think to try to strip pieces, I'm, I mean, one of the comparisons we make is, you, you can't read a graphic novel if you take the pictures away mm-hmm. and you can't really get Dylan if you strip him of his music or vice versa. And so it is, it's this moment of performance and, and that's really Dylan's art. And that's what we were sort of talking about is to, to really get Dylan as an artist. It's about his career and how he, he moves through time. Um, and, and he really sort of structures his career as the work of art, as opposed to any individual piece. So the, the, the pieces sort of get sublated in the whole and, and reflect this big thing. That's yeah, that's awesome. I like, I'm a huge, huge, huge Bob Dylan fan. Um, as he should I be. would never say that he is a great singer. Um, and I would never even say that maybe he is the most stunning lyricist because some of the songs you're like, well, you punch yourself in the face with your fist oh, like, that, right. that's actually brilliant uh, <laughs> you know, it's great uh, but like you wouldn't then be like oh he's fine literature right i do because like i do think and i get that intersection of it's not just one and again with the music the music is relatively simple he has like a lot of repeating things but like a ballad you don't want you know eight bridges and a break and a drop and all this stuff so no, I, I think he, he, he definitely knows what he's doing and, and he can do a lot of things. And, mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of apocryphal stories about Dylan that are just so fun. Um, but that idea of, of even his, his vocals, right? I mean, there's always, it's always somebody is like, oh, but he's not a good guitar player. He's not, he can't sing or, you know, um, um, well, he can play the harmonica, but that doesn't count. And, and um, 
and I dispute the guitar thing, but um, the, the the vocals is always an interesting thing. And I, I did a seminar on uh, Dylan recently, and I, I said to the students, I said, you know, whatever comes out of this class. And I mean, I had students of that class that that took it by accident, and they're like, isn't this a, a Harry Potter class? And I said, you know, the one thing I want you to come out uh, of this is that I want you to believe with me that Dylan is one of the great vocal artists of his time. And and I don't mean that in the sense that he sounds like Josh Groban or something like that, but I mean, he does, I mean, his, he, he uses his voice sort of like Tom Waits uses his voice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an instrument and he, and it also is part of this sort of method acting that he does. So like, you know, when, when, when he changes genres or when he changes whatever his voice comes with it and, and he does these, these, you know, it's, it's fun to read old, you know, criticisms of his work. And it's like, oh, his voice, his voice is finally <laughs> the voice he wanted to have when he was a kid and he's, he's wrecked his voice. Um, and then he puts out an album after that and he's hidden all his notes suddenly. And, and, and they're like, oh, uh, he must've retrained himself or something. Right. But I mean, it's, it, I think it's a like the persona thing. Like it's, it's a character almost that each album you kind of uh, you you grow and develop into this new thing and one of the one of the like mo- more modern versions of bob dylan i would say is daniel romano uh who is um a canadian musician who who you played with city and color as a guitar player had his own band attack in black and now is like daniel romano started out as a country he he started his new personification from uh, of the punk band that he was in, Attack in Black, moved to Americana music. He he turned into the most country. His his first album was called Come Cry with Me, and now he's kind of done this transition where he's completely changed his look. And if you if you track Bob Dylan's look throughout the years, Daniel Romano has paid very close attention to this and is mimicking what Bob Dylan did in all of his stages of his his style, his look. And now um, it's just a very interesting um, connection that I saw between the two. So I don't know where I was going with that at all. <laughs> was, is there a stage? Has he gone through the tight slacks and, and scarf stage yes. yet? Like, oh, yeah, yes. he did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's actually, it's scary pulling up pictures of them yeah. side by side. It's very interesting. And I think that that is a fantastic place for a break. Uh, This is Research Recasted. Uh, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more on metafiction. Going to dive into postmodernism and, well, more Bob Dylan. We are all absolutely devastated watching the events in Ukraine unfold. If you want to learn more about ways to help, or if you're seeking more information, uh, McEwen's Ukrainian Resource and Development Center is a place where you can find support and information, including their Ukraine Support Forum, and for a guide to understand Ukraine and current events, as well as links for humanitarian aid organizations. In support of the people of Ukraine, the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University will donate ticket sales from our upcoming music and theatre performances to the Canadian Ukraine Foundation. FFAC will donate 100% of ticket sales from all performances from March 20th to April 8th. You can find a full list of events on mcewen.ca slash events. Tell us a little bit more about your book, Stranger America, 
Um, what inspired the research behind the book and how, how did you get involved? Um, the Stranger America, I mean, Strange America works too. I, I, maybe, I don't know. I have to think about that. Is Stranger like, yeah. it's, it's like strange, but stranger or, or like stranger, <laughs> like someone you don't know. Um, it, it's sort of a play. I mean, it's, it's like America is strange, like a stranger America. What would that look like? A stranger America. If it was um, more strange. Yeah. If it was stranger. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, um, that, that it's populated with strangers kind of thing. I, 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 yes. Yeah, I dig of, that. <laughs> um, and that, so I, I, I mean, I, I think, I think I said earlier, um, I did my thesis on sort of the end of postmodernism, and um, and that that turned into my first book, which was called "The Passing of Postmodernism." Uh, and and when that book was when I was doing that book as a book and and publishing it, I was already working at McEwen, um, and I I'd, I'd been doing during my PhD um, because you do coursework and things during your your PhD, and I and I was also doing a lot with literary theory, just generally or philosophy. So I'd. I'd done some work already and, and even had published an article on um, the concept, sort of the American take on or, or uh, sort of representations of passing, racial passing. Uh, so characters who are racially ambiguous um, and, and can pass um, as, you know, a, a, a dominant, um, a sort of dominant race as opposed to a, a minority race. Uh, is usually how passing is seen. So someone who has um, African ancestry, for instance, um, but has pale enough skin to pass as, say, Spanish or, or Italian or something. And and I'd, I'd written on a, a, a very sort of famous book called um, called Passing, uh, which is, takes place in the Harlem Renaissance, and it's about these two women, both, both can pass as white. Um, and I was very interested in it, uh, the, the idea, how it, how it related to... to uh, literary theory and, and different philosophies of identity, uh, and especially the sort of tendency and criticism um, around racial ambiguity and, and passing to always assume that the character was passing for the dominant and not ever passing for the minority. And just looking at, at why that would be and, and why that would be um, just an assumption and, and maybe even why it needs to be the assumption. So that work was kind of going on in the background. And once um, I was on to a new project here at McEwen, I started really sort of building on that and, and um, looking at different versions of it, not just in terms of race, but in terms of um, gender, sexuality, all these different sort of moments where people don't fit neatly into one thing or another, where, where they are quite literally in between and, and in a state of passing or uh, moving and I, I started to think of this idea of the stranger and the stranger as as in, in a very philosophical sense of of that which doesn't sort of fit and you know I sort of conceived of this project where I would look at texts across time um, going all the way back to a, a famous uh, Herman Melville story Bartleby the Scrivener which is just about this <laughs> this law copyist named Bartleby who gets a job and and um, he would prefer not to. Yeah, and he would prefer not to, and <laughs> uh, and, and that's all he says. You know, the, the whole the whole story. So I start there, and I I, I try to go all the way up um, to the present, and um, and I end with Bob Dylan, and that's where the whole Bob Dylan thing comes in. 
And just looking at how this fits into a sort of philosophical understanding of, of identity and the relationship between the individual and a community and how there's this tension between a desire to be something, to be who I am, um, but yet that something is always defined by a, an external community that actually means you're not that thing. You're, you're only that thing in relationship to others. Um, and so that's where that idea of inclusion and exclusion comes from. So just just tracking that through all these different media forms, and I wanted to look at different media and, and, and different um, um, time periods and seeing how not only are these characters represented, these characters who, you know, confront other characters with this ambiguity and in confronting them with the ambiguity, sort of expose them to their own sort of uh, fragility or, or sort of um, mutability, their, their own sort of tendency not to be what they think they are or what they assume they are. And, and I wanted to look then at the same time about how these characters get ridden into a narrative, how the structure of the narrator tries, the narrative tries to hold them, or, or even if it can hold them. And, that, and that's where the sort of ethics of narrative com comes from. So that by the end, I'm really looking at, you know, how do we, how do we share ourselves and how do we connect with others if what we're sharing is this sort of infinite thing that doesn't fit in any one category? How do we share that without sort of denying it or, or um, sort of repressing it? And how do we connect with others without sort of imposing upon them our sense of who they are, right? Like wow. whatever that might be. And, and that's, that's where that book came from. And, and, and it leads back up into postmodernism again with, with Dylan and I talk about Curb Your Enthusiasm and um, Seinfeld. You know, there's this great scene in Seinfeld where uh, they're, they're talking about what Seinfeld's show should be about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and George says, this is it. This is the show. And Seinfeld says, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, this is the show. Just us talking. He goes, but it's got to be about something. No, no, it doesn't have to be about. It'll be about nothing. Coffee Everybody's doing something. Yeah, we'll, we'll do nothing. And, and so who, who's in the show? Well, I'll be in the show. And he's like, you'll be in the show? Everyone says you're quite a character. And, you know, that... That idea of being a character and, and how postmodernism takes this problem of, you know, I am truly this thing or I'm lost in this community and just goes, there's nobody, there's nothing. And, and I have no response. And there's a sort of perversity about it at its extreme. And, and, and I, don't, I don't need to take responsibility for myself because I'm just this, you know, piece of driftwood on, on a raging sort of cultural ocean. And, you know, I go wherever I go and I perform whatever I perform and there's no real me. Um, but on the other hand, there's this sort of the, the opposite of that, which is, you know, this is absolutely me. And, and, um, and, and you, you're very fragile and easy to break when you're like that. Right. Um, and so when you're confronted with somebody who sort of exposes you to other possibilities, I mean, homophobia is a really great example of that. Um, you, you often react violently. And so a lot of the stories I look at, you know, end in violence where, where these characters who, who just don't fit anywhere need to be got rid of um, mm -hmm. because they just, they're frustrating the communal order in the sense of, of security. And that's where that, the sort of critique of America comes from in the, in the, in the book. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk a lot about postmodernism um, for those of us um, or listeners that don't, might not be 
as familiar um, with postmodern theory. Can you just break it down a little bit in the context of your work? I mean, the the term postmodernism is is just taken on. You know, it's 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 so integrated into our popular discourse that it it, it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But I, but I think it, it means now. I think for most people, you know, yeah, moral relativism, a, a, a sort of uh, problematic sort of. Uh, lack of responsibility for for real things, um, and, and you know, at its most extreme, is is this idea not not only that that there's multiple truths, but that there is nothing but what we construct, and and maybe even at the most most you know extreme is is it leads to a kind of solipsism, solipsism being like that that idea in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, or, or through the Looking Glass, actually, where where she sees the the king sleeping, and, and uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum say, "You know, don't wake him up. If you wake him up, we all go out like like, like candles, right? He's he's dreaming everything." And Alice, of course, gets really upset and starts crying because she says, "No, I'm dreaming it." And that idea that you know, if, if you close your eyes, the world disappears, kind of thing, and and it is just all a matter of perception, and um, I mean, pure pure solipsism. which is like such a heavy thing because I mean now it's like life is a hologram and none of this is real and we're in the matrix and I'm like what (laughs) yeah I mean there's that that sort of one of the more famous um Slavlov Zizek articles where he's talking about the matrix and he says he watched it in some theater uh, and Zizek always says he's always talking about perfect idiots right it's a perfect Mm -hmm. idiot um and and he says that the guy beside him, it was like he'd never been to a movie before and was like, oh, this, this is the Matrix. I'm in the Matrix. Oh, my God. We got to tell somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and Zizek's just loving this. And, and, you know, but then also kind of critiquing uh, the Matrix and, and what it's trying to do and what it's sort of trying to assume. But, um I mean, the Matrix is an interesting example. We, I, I mean, I mentioned it already because um, it is it it seems postmodern in, in the sense that we're living in the Matrix, right? But it's not at all because I mean, Zion is this real concrete thing that somehow or other we can identify and and we can escape to. And and I mean, and and what's interesting about the Matrix, and I I, I love to sort of teach this um, is that this assumption of the real, um, well, like welcome to the real world, justifies in that movie really terrible acts of violence. I mean, Neo is told that that everyone they kill is actually a real person, uh, a living person, yeah. but that they're, they're pod people, right? Um, but they don't know that. They're just living their lives in the Matrix. Um, but the, that this, these revolutionaries have decided it's better to kill these people um, because they're not free. Um, Which I think is insane because if I was in the Matrix, I'd be like, keep me in, please. I, I, I mean, I, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, your option. I mean, and, and there's that weird moment in the Matrix where they really have to fight to make Cypher a bad guy because he just has the best. He just wants a yeah, steak. Yeah, exactly. And so... You know, so he has to shoot people and do these sorts of things. But I mean, he really hasn't. He's probably done less damage uh, to to humans in in the movie than anyone else. Uh, so hot take. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
Yeah, so I kind of just want to pull back. So in Stranger America, uh, you argue that American literature, music, film, and television can show us a path toward a new ethic. Um, one where we organize identity around the stranger that we were just talking about, um, rather than those exclusion or inclusion. Can you help break that down just a little bit? And, um, like what, what is a, a new ethic and like, how can literature, music and film lead us towards one that kind of, um, goes past just exclusion or inclusion? Well, I, I think the, the, the goal I mean, whether I'm successful or not is, 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 like I said, to look at these different sort of strategies for representing um, these characters that are actually, in, on, in some way or another, not representable. Um, and, and allowing us as readers to accept what can't be known while not denying the thing itself um, and, and sort of... Uh, saying there, there's something here, and and that something is something we can share. But what gets shared is always a sort of entry point into something beyond the container that shares it. And so there's a sort of experience of uh, excess within this narrative structure, and and that that really could be a, a way of thinking ethically about our relationships with others and with other communities and with other groups because, you know, we really like to have answers and we really like to label people and to organize them into categories and to psychologize them, psychologize them, or um, however you'd say that, sorry. I like um, psychologize. Yeah. <laughs> like exercise, but psychologize. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, your it's, brain. yeah, it's great, actually. Um, um, and so... You know, looking at different ways that this gets done, and and so I like you know one of the cool uh, examples in the book that 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 I look at you know more towards the end of the book. Um, I mean, I, I, something like Bartleby the Scrivener is a really great example of that, where you know this we don't get to know Bartleby, and that's sort of the point. And and if we're good readers, uh, we don't try to do what the narrator does, which is to make sense of him, to give him a story, to 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 to, to pin him down. And and there's something mortifying about that. I mean, Bartleby dies at the end, and and he dies against a wall and as if this limit uh, to who he could be or what potential he had. Uh, this, this Italian philosopher, uh, Gomden, talks about potentiality and, and this idea of, of, of sustaining one's potential, uh, even in the moment of expression. So you can read Bartleby in that, that sort of way. And, and the reader there is sort of invited to sort of let Bartleby be what he is in the sense that he is something we can never completely understand or hold on to. And the narrator isn't able to do that. And I mean, a lot of people read that story as um, a sort of autobiographical story from Melville talking about how as a writer, uh, especially after he wrote Moby Dick and everyone was just like, what is this guy doing? I think he's crazy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, he, he had ended up just having to sort of, you know, fade away and, and, you know, work for a living and, and, um, and, and no one got him. And, and Bartleby comes out after that. And it seems to be him saying, like, I prefer not to just keep writing adventure stories for you because there's more. There's more to me. Uh, but one of the cool examples, I, I think, is uh, there's this book by Philip K. Dick uh, who wrote, like, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Like, the basis for Blade Runner. And uh, he has this book 
late in his his career, after he had a divine encounter with a pink beam of light, this is true, um, he, he saw a pink beam of light, which he, he thought was, he called it zebra, he, he had different names for it. Um, and he started after that writing this journal, which was thousands and thousands of pages long of just notes about you know his encounter with this and how he now knew ancient Greek and he he was told that his son was going to die of a hernia and it turned out to be true and uh, all these things and it, I mean he he seems to you know really seem to lose his mind or it's true but rather than than write an autobiography he wrote a book called Velus. And in Vellis, he creates a character named Horse Lover Fat, who is friends with Philip K. Dick and other people. And, and he has Horse Lover Fat have this encounter and tell Dick about it. And, and Dick in the book is like, I think, I don't think, I think you're crazy. And, and, and Horse Lover Fat starts to write this journal. And then there's quotes from Dick's journal from Horse Lover Fat in the book. And so there's this weird sort of, distancing of the self in that book. And it's like Dick saying, I can't really contain this. I can't tell you my story. Um, so I'm going to um, displace it in, in a way. In, and in a way that you know it's my story, but yet you don't think you got me or you've, you've trapped me or you've confined me into uh, autobiographical text. Looking at things like that where I, I start to get into autobiography and, and the sort of lie of autobiography or documentary, uh, the way in which a lot of documentaries give us this sense that we have actually, you know, encountered. Yeah, yeah or, 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 or the event or whatever, yeah. right? And it's always so constructed, you know? It'll be like uh, when Bob Dylan was in high school and then there'll be like a... a uh, a, a still and the camera will like move over this picture of a high school, which gives this illusion of movement. And, and you don't even know if that's his high school. No, it's just, it's just like a, a picture imagery. of high school. Right. And, um, so what do you think is, sorry to cut you off. Uh, what do you think is more effective? Do you think that these autobiographies of just like, this is what happened and this is exact, even though it might be an interesting story, um, or some of these like, uh, almost like biofiction uh, stories of not specifically about this person, but it's about this person um, with with use of metaphor and and all these other 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 um, writing devices. Do you think those are more effective, or um, should we should we analyze those things differently and maybe not tie them so much to the to the writer or like you know the bio the bio, like the actual autobiographies where it's like, oh, that's just facts. Well, you know, what, what, one of the things, you know, you always learn in first year English, I mean, usually is, is never call the speaker of a story or a poem the author. The narrator. or I always call them the speaker or the persona, yeah. right? You don't, you know, say if this poem's by Wordsworth, you know, like um, I wandered lonely as a cloud. The I isn't really Wordsworth. I mean, it is, but it's it's the speaker of the poem because there's always this sort of distance between the construct of of the speaking voice and and um, the actual, you know, living, breathing what? author. So that distance 
though is often lost, especially in documentary and 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 when we're talking about this this turn away from postmodernism, there's a sort of knee jerk reaction to be you know like no, I just want a true account and I want I want to know things. So that that kind of text you're describing is is kind of part of this new or narrative ethics. How do we sort of find a line between um, an autobiographical work or or any sort of historic historiography um, that is very dominating and colonial in its sort of assumption that or the way it encourages a reader to go, oh, this is it. This is this is the real thing. This is true. And this other form, which is very sort of peak postmodernism, where it's just like nothing like this. You can't rely on anything here. It's, it's all made up. It's all just, you know, BS. How do we sort of find a way to hold on to um, this true thing without sort of sterilizing it? Or, I mean, to go back to like someone like Zizek, um, mortifying it, like mm-hmm. fixing it into this sort of dead, you know, very sort of uh, dry and, and, and fragile thing that, that isn't, it has no sort of living effervescence, you know, and... Um, and that's really sort of where, where I'm sort of trying to, to move things and, and find ways of doing it. So I end, and this leads back to polyvocal Bob Dylan with that, mm-hmm. that, um, with a chapter on Bob Dylan, which I call, uh, Bob Dylan's autoplasticity. And I, I'm playing with this idea of plasticity, which comes from, uh, some sort of more recent readings of, of the philosopher Hegel. Uh, we don't need to get into Hegel. It's, it's very painful. It's probably but, a much longer. Um, but the, the idea of plasticity is something that's that that you can mold, right? Like you can, it's 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 plastic. It, um, but it's also a unit. It 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 has limits. You you can mold it an infinite number of ways, but it it's only it can only do so many things within its 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 amount and what it is. It's, it's this lump, right? And you can shape it. Um, but also, uh, still plus, that lump. <laughs> it's still that lump. Well, that's exactly right, right? And and um, and but also playing on the idea of uh, like plastic explosives that that some texts have this ability to sort of explode out of their structure, mm-hmm. um, and and to have this thing, this object, or this event, or this person that is captured within the frame of the structure, the language burst out of it. Right and 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 sort of fly like almost like shrapnel uh, outside of our grasp uh, and and is that explosion the the reader's uh, interpretation? It it's also the the inability to 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 grasp it all. Like things are and 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 the way in which the text forces us to accept that. Like uh, without at the same time slipping into this perversity of of just it's all fiction. It's, it's all. And like if you ever read a, a, say a Nabokov book, um, you know, something like, uh, Lolita, Lolita is a really good example. It starts with the main character or the narrator in jail and everything he tells us in the book is a lie. Like, and to the point where you can't, the whole point of it is you don't know anything. Like there's, everything is, is fake. Back to the matrix. Everything, (laughs) but without Zion, right? And, and so where Nabokov is just like, there's no ground. There's no foundation. You have nothing. You know, something like Dick's book is like, no, there's this really traumatic, real thing. And I'm trying to get at it. And I can't just tell it to you. 
can't just report it because that's not it. But it loses its weight. Right. It, it's, 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 um, so Emmanuel Levinas has this idea of the infinite as that which is in the finite. So you can, the infinite is ungraspable, like God, but it's contained in the finite. So infinite in means not, but it also means in. So infinite is both what exceeds this limited container, but also what's contained within it. And, uh, and that's sort of the kind of uh, textual sort of acrobatics I'm kind of looking at as a kind of uh, <laughs> ethics. And Dylan uh, does, does this. I mean, you, 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 you're both Dylan fans, so you know like Blood on the Tracks, right? Uh, Blood on the Tracks is, by all accounts, a breakup album, uh, a, a very autobiographical breakup album. I mean, Tangled Up in Blue, I think, is my favorite Bob Dylan song. It's 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 sublime, and and I mean it, but yet in Tangled Up in Blue, the whole point of Tangled Up in Blue is that his his subjectivity keeps shifting. I mean, sometimes he's an I, and sometimes he's a he. Or she, um, or, yeah, 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 and 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 he'll change it from performance to performance, and and he'll also then tell you if you're like, oh, can you talk about the autobiographical aspects of Blood on the Tracks? He's like, what do you mean? It's not autobiographical. It's <laughs> it's it's based on a cycle of Chekhov stories. Which ones? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So this, and in his autobiography uh, or his memoir, which is Volume One, although there's no other volumes. Uh, he, he does the same sort of thing. And he warns you. He says, you know, all these people would interview me and they wanted me to give them straight answers. And like as Life's if I would do that. not a straight answer. Yeah. Like that's and, his, his whole thing, right? And then he plagiarizes most of it, right? <laughs> so uh, it's, he makes all kinds of things up that just didn't happen at all. He, he, but he slides it all in um, and it, it works like a normal memoir, but it also jumps around in time and he, he explodes out of it 100 percent. so going back to like the topic of like what what is real and what is not talking about the matrix and all the other crazy things that we've talked about postmodernism and everything um so the the book touches on work by like very popular culture like very pop pop culture in in influence like larry david um can you talk maybe a little bit about how the work fit into this project that you're on that with the book like, like, why the text, why the things I looked at? Did I look at them? Like, all yeah, these different like I, range? Yeah, like, I mean, you're talking Seinfeld, you're talking Larry David, obviously, Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, which I think is really interesting when you're talking about who is the narrator? Is the narrator the author? And, like, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm, great example. Like, I like to think that actually is Larry David, because <laughs> yeah. then you have the Larry David of Seinfeld. Um, but, obviously, it's not Larry David, but it is Larry David, so... Um, can you just talk about, I mean, I just want to talk about Larry David. So in the context of Stranger America, um, where does Larry David's work fit into it? Well, Kirby Enthusiasm. I, I mean, I, and also the the line between Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm, which I think you could you can map those two as being, Seinfeld as being sort of peak postmodernism. And, and Seinfeld is just about a bunch of jerks. And they they have no moral compass. They have no... They're they're literally solipsistic. I mean, there's one episode of Seinfeld where they just have a masturbation con con competition, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that really describes the show. It's just self-indulgent, and and they're all jerks, like they really are. And then you get Kirby enthusiasm, and and Larry David is again a jerk, but 
the the focus shifts to this odd sort of effort to capture David as a real entity, and, and, while at the same time kind of balancing those sort of postmodern uh, attitudes about what's real. And I think you know David's very you know, slippery throughout career enthusiasm to bring in real actors who play themselves, but then he'll bring in actors who don't play themselves. Like Elizabeth Shue, for instance, comes into the show, but she's not Elizabeth Shue, but yet Michael J. Fox is Michael J. Fox. And and um, J.B. Smoove is not J.B. Smoove, but he is J.B. Smoove. Exactly, right. Uh, <laughs> probably the greatest addition to Curb Your Enthusiasm. And the, the, the moment I look at, actually, is in connecting those two is the season... The, the reunion season. And it starts with with uh, Larry David deciding he wants to do a Seinfeld reunion show. And Seinfeld, it plays Seinfeld in it. And he says, what do you mean? Like, you've never wanted to do a reunion show. You think they're stupid. Like, what's changed? And what's changed is that he's broken up with his wife in the show. And he thinks he can get back with her if he has her play George's wife in Seinfeld, which would mean she was playing his wife because George is him in Seinfeld. So this is oh really cool. And, and what's really neat about it is that this season, and it's, it's almost heartbreaking, he had broken up with his real wife. Because uh, she had cheated on him, I think, with like the pool guy or something. I don't know. You can look it up. But um, so this this breakup in real life is happening in the background. And then he narrativizes it into this semi-realistic docu-style fiction. And then he he tacks on this metafictional sort of uh, recursive loop where he's going to have the the actor who plays his wife in Curb Your Enthusiasm play George's wife in the Seinfeld reunion so that he can get back with her in Curb Your Enthusiasm. And then that seems to reflect back into his real life, like as if all these things like, and it's just this really incredible and and in a way that Seinfeld never is touching narrative about literally Larry David. But yet, we know as viewers and we never we never slip into that temptation to go oh now i know larry david because it's so ridiculous and it's so um clearly fictionalized but yet it's not a denial of the foundation upon which the fiction is built in fact it's a fiction that gives us access to that thing without occluding it or 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 cutting it off or making the fiction sort of supplant the thing the fiction can't hold so it becomes a sort of transparent fiction and we get to see into something that we couldn't otherwise see and and we get access to something that's that's impossible to hold wow that's really interesting um we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back Change toothpaste toothpaste tablets help keep non-recyclable plastic toothpaste tubes out of landfills where they take over 500 years to break down they come in fully compostable packaging and their local company right here at Edmonton. Visit changetoothpaste.com to find a full range of their dental hygiene products and try for yourself. It's a small step that can make a big change. Uh, yeah, so we talked a lot about we talked a lot about metafiction today, so let's dive into 
Truth and Metafiction. Which is a book that you published in December of 2020. So relatively recently. Technically, I guess it, it was published in 2020. I don't know how, how, how that works, but um, it was an ebook. Uh, came out first a month before the print book, you know, just to sort of, you know, get that huge market. Get the juices flowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So technically 2021. Yeah, yeah. 2020, 2021. I, I, it's, it's the only book I have that has this weird sort of publication uh, oddity going on. So I never know. It's a preview. Yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think uh, obviously a lot of people are familiar with the concept of meta. Uh, meme culture, <laughs> I think it's a big thing. Or like, whoa, that's like so meta. Um, I said that earlier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you actually start the book with a meta quote from the animated series Teen Titans Go. Uh, can you just help us understand metafiction? What is meta and why did you choose this quote to start the book? Uh, well, I, I start with metafiction, I guess. Um, I mean, not, I mean, meta when, when, you know, the meme sort of that so meta is, is, I guess, I don't know. Um, I've yet to figure out what a meme is, but, um, it's a kind of, you know, reference to something that is, uh, recursive, I guess, or, or when somebody says that's so meta, as in um, it's sort of like you're seeing something in a mirror and a mirror and a mirror. And metafiction, which which really takes off, um, I mean, you, you see examples of metafiction all throughout um, literary history. I mean, there's uh, metafiction in Shakespeare, right? Uh, when Hamlet, for instance, says that you know, this distracted globe, he's, he's in the play referring to the globe theater, uh, and all, uh, you know, all the world's a stage and, and lines like this, there's, there's lots of moments in, in a lot of works all the way up. I mean, uh, Huckleberry Finn starts with, uh, Huckleberry Finn saying, you may know me from another book by, um, uh, Mr. Twain. And, and he's talking about Tom Sawyer, like another fictional book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not until really the 50s that you start seeing metafiction in this way we understand it. And it's not until the 70s that the word metafiction uh, is then applied to this, this type of work, which is typically a work, and I mean, at the, at the most simplest way of just putting it, is a work that draws attention to its own nature as a fictional construct. So it doesn't allow that typical or traditional suspension of disbelief that comes along with most narrative artifacts where, you know, you watch Star Wars and, you know, this is a real world and, and you're supposed to lose yourself in it and, and have this sort of emotional connection to these people who are experiencing these things. Yes, it's a fantasy and it's, it's not real. We know that, but we're supposed to forget that in the moment. And so like something like Star Wars well, a good example of metafiction is Spaceballs, which is yeah. Star Wars redone. And then you have that, that well, you have a whole bunch like when, when the, the, the the radar gets jammed and it's literally jam or when, when they're like, we're combing well, the desert. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're combing the desert. Um, and, and then, of course, they're like, well, where are they? We can't find them. And he goes, you know what we can do? We can watch the movie Spaceballs. Uh, because it's already been released and and because there's this new thing called early release and then they watch the like movie Spaceballs <laughs> and and at one point uh, Dark Helmet or what Big Helmet well, I forget what his name is um, says uh, what are we watching now 
And on the screen, he's going, what are we watching now? And the guy's like, we're watching now, now. This is now, this is happening now. What do you mean this is happening now? Well, everything we're doing now is happening. That's, you know, is, is as meta as it gets. And, and at the peak of, of postmodernism, and metafiction is really the dominant narrative form of, of postmodernism. For sure. So in the book, you argue that much of the contemporary metafiction um, moves much past postmodernism or postmodern skepticism, rather. So to, to reassert the possibility of making true claims about real things, the, the like it's a bit of a mouthful, so uh, maybe break that down. Uh, well, you know, to talk about Teen Titans Go, I guess. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah, answer that. I, I, I better like, do that, no. right? Um, but, but to come to that question, uh, so it, part of it is this thing I do where I get exposed to something and I got to write about that. And my son at the time was deep into Teen Titans Go, and uh, I'm a I'm a pretty big Batman fan, so uh, I was inclined. And 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 he was just at an age he knew I was doing this work, and he said, "Dad, you got to watch this. It's super meta." Oh my god! And how old is your son? He's 12 now, turning 13. So he would have been about 10 at at, at the time when I was, you know, doing the, the mm-hmm. laying the groundwork. Didn't even know what meta was back then. Yeah. And uh, he. Uh, so he shows me this a, a few episodes, and some, one, one of them was um, uh, an episode called Ninjitsu, um, where they have to learn ninjutsu so, to get the MacGuffin, and they have to find this MacGuffin, and they're talking about the MacGuffin, and, and Robin's constantly like, it's, it's like the thing you have to find. And they're like, what is it? And he's like, it's the MacGuffin. And they're like, but no, really, what is it? And he's like, you don't know what it is because it's the MacGuffin but you got to find it and you got to get it. And then they finally get there and they get it. And it's just an egg McMuffin. And there's, there's all these, like, I mean, there, there's a whole episode where they, um, uh, they start to lose their own, their reality because their, their creators have, have, have given up. There's two, there's a crushing workload, 24 episodes in a season and they've just given up, so they have to go out of their reality and find their their creators and and convince them to start making new episodes. And so it's it's very meta. I mean, mm-hmm. Teen Titans Go is very very meta. Breaking that fourth wall. Oh, they, they literally break the fourth wall in an episode called the fourth wall. <laughs> yeah. And and they like turn to the the. I screen didn't realize they, Teen Titans Go was so like deep advanced. Mm-hmm. I thought it was you know more of a kids show, but they're teaching kids all these advanced theories yeah and so the question is though you know back to this thing you know is it is it sort of a problem you know is it is it sort of this relinquishing of responsibility for the truth and for real things and and um um you know taking account of of experiences that that can't be denied so the truth you you talk about in your book about post truth. Is that the post truth crisis? So that is something like Teen Titans Go. That's that's how why I start there. And and I mean when it's it's kind of cute. And so I start the book by saying like there were these books about metafiction during postmodernism, and then no one's really talked about it since then. But since then, and 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 when those books came out about metafiction, Linda Hutchin, a famous Canadian scholar, wrote one and. Um, uh, Patricia Waugh, an American scholar, wrote one, and and they they were really about celebrating postmodernism and what it could do. But then after that, you know, starting the '90s, about and then in, all the way up to today, metafiction has just become this sort of mainstay. Like everything is meta. Like 
you know, Jane the Virgin or um, Teen Titans Go or, I mean, everything has this sort of like, you always have to be ironic. You always have to sort of have a, a nudge or a wink. You can't really be sincere. And this is that sign of the post-truth era and, and the sort of uh, failure of postmodernism in the sense that it went from being uh, a revolutionary sort of ideology or way of thinking to being something that's just sort of co-opted uh, for ease or for the sake of sort of uh, forgoing any sort of, you know, uh, rigorous kind of attention to uh, important or, or, you know, moral kind of issues. I think it's like interesting, you know, just when you mentioned like irony and everything has to be ironic is that so many times things that are ironic or that we do in irony actually become like ingrained in who we are and what we believe. And like as a very simplistic, terrible example is like maybe you say like, oh, totes because you're making fun of something. And then it literally becomes something to the point where you like say totes in an interview and you're like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Like, what have yeah. I done? So I think it's really interesting. We have these things. And even if a show is being very meta and self-reflective and ironic, it still, I think, stands to influence how we think and how we feel. So is this use of irony actually benefiting us or is it kind of creating this overly ironic, unsubstantive Well, how, you, how you turn all these serious action movies into comedies the new star Wars, all the Marvel. Uh, it's like, when, when am I going to actually feel like a serious thing? Any, any again, you know, well, the original star Wars, like the first three, like, yes, there was comedic relief, but I felt that they were deeper, darker stories with like, I mean, aunt Maru and uncle Owen, and you come back to these burned carcasses. And I remember watching that as a five-year-old being like, Wee. but, but <laughs> in a way meta, because it's actually uh, uh, a steal from the searchers. Um, the, the, uh, John Ford movie um, that 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 burning. So I mean, it's very pastiche uh, mm -hmm. uh, Star Wars, but this idea. Then I mean, uh, what you're saying is is was was exactly what David Foster Wallace, who who's sort of like the the the, the father of a post postmodern movement, and he he wrote this essay where he just he just rips apart this world of irony and, and metafiction. He's just talking about, he's, while he's writing the essay, he's talking about watching St. Elmo's fire and how even in watching just TV, everything is referring back to itself. And, and even the essay in his effort to get out of irony, he, he starts to be ironic. And there's, this seems to be this trap of like, how, how do we do this? And so I, that's where I wanted to start with the book and go, well, let's just look at where metafiction has got. And it's gotten all the way to Teen Titans Go. And in fact, I, I actually spend like probably five pages analyzing uh, the metafiction of Teen Titans Go. And I say, well, you know, it's not very sophisticated, but, but it's actually doing something different than metafiction uh, was doing in the 80s or in the 70s or in the 60s and, and certainly into the 90s. And that we can use that as a sort of launch pad to start talking about... Um, the way in which uh, metafiction is still being used in literature and in, and in film, but with a more sort of uh, ethical or moral slant. And it's, it's often now been, been co-opted uh, by a lot of the groups that weren't really into metafiction. So a lot of marginalized groups or racialized groups, uh, minority groups, especially in the States, 
And so we start to see this sort of effort to not sort of just knee-jerk back into a kind of colonial attitude about apprehending history and the self and reality. And, and that's, you know, it stems out of what I was doing with Stranger America. And we see this effort to sort of manage our expectations of the truth without, you know, going all the way postmodern, with, without sort of abandoning the truth altogether. And instead we get this sort of recovery of the truth in a, in a much more um, uh, giving manner in a much more um, open way. So that was the idea with that book and, and to try to see, you know, how um, this, this form that should really have exhausted itself hasn't in fact is more popular than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and on one hand just indulges in a kind of irresponsibility, but on another in another way, has this sort of potential to to still do something that um, is is worth looking at. Uh, just before you go, like, what are you currently focusing your time on? Um, do you have anything planned for the future? Uh, are there any interesting emerging personalities in film or literature that you see potential in for a future project? I I, I don't know about the last question. Uh, right now, I'm just trying to get through this term, I guess. Uh, Same. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I think it's worse than last year. And... Um, I'm organizing a conference with uh, another uh, professor, professor of philosophy, who does his own podcast, a, a film and philosophy podcast. And uh, we're doing a, we're putting together this international conference in Banff. So that's going to take up most of my work un- until May when it happens, uh, or most of my time. And uh, and then on the side, my, my next project I want to work on is is sort of go further into just autobiography and and forms of autobiography and, and looking at those kind of autobiographies you you were describing, which is those, those sort of fictionalized accounts of, of, of the self and Norm MacDonald's cool. autobiography. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read it. it it's it's it, yeah. so good, but it's so bizarre. And okay, it's yeah. so like, it isn't an autobiography, but it is, but it isn't. It's yeah. really great. I would highly, highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm for sure. I, I, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, so yeah, and and I yes, yeah, so, so one of the movies I want to look at is Twixt, uh, one of Francis Ford Coppola's last movies, which is oddly autobiographical in a really weird way, and but it's also about vampires, and <laughs> and so that the yeah that's that's what I'm gonna do I, I, in terms of uh, people emerging sort of artists and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I mean I. I've, I've, I've just recently read uh, Carmen Maria Machado's uh, In the Dream House, uh, which is a really, really recent book, and, and she's a really emergent writer doing really cool stuff. And again, with metafictional things, but in, you know, her, in her autobiography, she has a moment where it turns into uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, and, very cool. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm not entirely, I don't know, I, I'm still thinking about that book, and I, I, I'm not sure what to do with it, but... Uh, it, it's it's definitely worth reading. Um, the last thing I have for you is uh, this episode will actually be airing right before the week of solidarity with people's struggling against racism and racial discrimination. Um, and you use a lot of your work to talk about, again, like the strangeness, the stranger ethics um, and race and gender, things like that. Do you have any movies or books um, that help that might help people challenge their own perceptions in a way that might make them better allies or better able to understand those that aren't in their in-group. Just one of the recent ones I read, uh, Salvador Placienza's um, uh, The 
people of paper, which is just fantastic and 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 really is this amazing metafictional account of of sort of an immigrant experience in in the U.S. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, uh, passing. I mean, I, I think everyone should read Passing. It's it's an incredible book. And uh, and then, I mean, this is maybe a little cliche, but I mean, I love Toni Morrison's Beloved. And and then uh, almost anything by William Faulkner is just uh, will will blow your mind if you can if you can read sentences in the same way you should drink scotch. You know, you you kind of have to just hold it in and you know really really let it burn for a while. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, like Light in August, for instance, is just this incredible thing, or Go Down Moses. Uh, so, yeah, those, those, those are all, um, anything by Octavia Butler, uh, if you're into sci-fi, like Kindred or Dawn or, or any of those sorts of things where, where you know, you have this um, really, really different perspective on aliens and time travel and, incredible stuff that's exciting well thank you so much for joining us here today uh it's been a real pleasure talking with you this this has been a really like i said earlier uh outside on our break just like this has been a really stimulating conversation and lots lots to lots to unpack um i hope we can schedule a follow-up episode at some point Mm -hmm. like that would be really great to like extend on a lot of these theories i'm happy to talk as you can tell i mean maybe too much uh but thanks thanks for having me Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to stay plugged in, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes every two weeks. And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by me, Dylan Cave, and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producers are Jason Malenko and Ray Barry. 